Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast, presented by Paul Spain, Bradley Burrows and guests. Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode number 56. You're with Paul Spain. You've got Bradley Burrows. And Skip Parker. Before we go anywhere, it's a special day today. It is. Whose birthday is it? Santa's. It's Skip Parker's, everyone. Happy birthday, Skip. Happy birthday, buddy. I um, deliberately changed my Facebook (laughs) birth date. (laughs) I do it each year just before my birth date, so it throws the scent off. Yeah, but we know because... I just have secret spice. Yeah, what's up with that? I know. But happy birthday, buddy. Cheers. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. on with the show. Yeah, sorry if you wanted to keep that public. We've completely uh, messed <laughs> that up. Uh, now people just have to guess your birth year, and then they'll be able to hack into all sorts of stuff of yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> We're, uh, this is the NZ Tech Podcast. We're help, here to help identity thieves from around the world. <laughs> All right, now into our topics. It's been a rather busy little week in the world of tech. There's all sorts of cool things going on, consumer stuff, business stuff, home tech, lots of it. Now, first up, I want to dive into talking about ultra-fast broadband in New Zealand. Over the weekend, we put online a consolidation of a lot of information that we've collated from, uh, from all around the web in New Zealand, including some new info that people seem rather excited about, and that is the new um, or the very first UFB or, or fibre um, internet uh, pricing plans for uh, residential customers in Auckland and in Christchurch. Now, we know there's been some odd pockets that have had access to UFB in the, or to, to uh, fibre in the past, but these are the, the new uh, UFB plans that will be rolling out rather broadly. Um, so we've, we've collated those, and those plans start at just 70 bucks a month. What do you guys think about that? Uh, the prices are good. You happy with the pricing? I think the pricing's phenomenal. I just don't think I'm going to get it. <laughs> well, you're a little bit further down the down the list to the... Well, I guess the challenge at the moment is that only a very small number of addresses uh, have been announced in the rollout plans because, as we as we know, uh, the you know full completion of this network isn't due to to be to happen until uh, around 2020. So there's supposed to be a, you know potentially up to eight years to roll it out all around the country. Uh, but the first block has, and um, I'm getting mine in about eight weeks, which is rather nice. Um, and also, I went for a little drive over the weekend out to Avondale in Auckland, which is where some of the very, very first Auckland customers have um, have had their fibre installed. So you can still see the... Uh, well, some of the street is is still torn up, and um, other bits and pieces, other areas, the grass is sort of starting to grow back. Uh, but you can see all the um, all the bits on the street, and they're all set to go. So, anyone that's living in uh, Rosebank Road in Auckland, of which there's not very many residential customers around that area, but there, there are a few, and there's also a whole bunch of it's sort of a semi-industrial zone. Uh, so I'm sure there'll be a lot of happy little businesses out there that are able to get. Um, a bit faster and a bit more reliable internet. So, we know you're a fanboy of this. Me and Skip are on the fence in this one at the moment. I, I, I'm more in the paddock. You're in the, the paddock. I, I'm, I, I'm, being, I'm on the fence. I sort you of told me the other day that you you want it. I know I, I want high speed internet. We all just, want high speed internet. But I just I'm not convinced. And I'm and I like I was before the show. You were giving me a really good education on how this thing's all going to connect up, which I like. But I'm still trying to get my head around a lot of people out there where the money is really tight at the moment. So you come to my door. Besides you, forget you because you're you're a fan. But if you go to a normal business and saying, "Well, your internet can go from 17 meg to 30 meg," and because you've currently got ADSL in your organisation, and they're going to go, "Yeah," and they're going to go, "But you can do this." but I've got to pay more money to get it up and going. And I think with businesses being so tight at the moment, I don't know, I, I'm not convinced that households and businesses are going to have the money around the spare cash to actually migrate across to this right at the moment. That's, that's my, my concern. That's my big concern. And then we're going to be in a situation where the government's gone, we put all this fibre out and no one's actually using it at the moment. But that means for you, though, you're going to have a lot of free bandwidth. But, <laughs> but I just, money's tight, and that's my concern. 
Yeah, that, I mean, I think that that's that's a really good point, and my feeling is that that's that's part of the reason why they're targeting these at a price point that actually makes them really affordable to business as well as consumers. So, um, you know, for instance, at the moment we have to pay quite you have to pay quite a lot of money for. Um, you know, even a business phone line or or a residential phone line, and the UFB plans come usually with a with a voice over IP type um, phone line, and because of the technology that's in play, you'll actually get good quality calls over that connection. And some, you know, well, a lot of cases it should be better than um, than a traditional voice call over the old copper network. So when when we look at those plans, you know, we talked about that seventy dollar plan. This is from WorldNet, so we don't know what other ISPs plans will be. Uh, but if we look at WorldNet's plans compared to a lot of the other ISPs, they are one of the cheapest in the market They're right great. now. They're really um, cheap. So, so they are they are you know at that um, that um, sharper sharper pricing end. Um, but you know, in terms of a residential connection for ninety nine dollars, they're doing, and this is similar pricing to what we've seen in Whangarei from Uber Group. So for ninety nine dollars, they will give you. Um, uh, slower than the Uber Group speed, but you still got um, 10 megabits upload speed, which is about 10 times what most people are getting on their DSL today. So that's an advantage, and then 30 megabits um, download speed, which is you know a little bit of a step up on on the ADSL2 type connections that, that we have at the moment in most cases. So why is up for people that are listening that are new? Why is upload speed really important to have a high upload versus download pool? Well, it depends what you're doing, but if you're wanting to do video conferencing and those sorts of things, where it's not where you're not just you know viewing content, but you're actually sharing content from your system, that's important. Maybe you're working from home, you're working in the cloud, and you want to be able to save documents. The faster that upload speed is, the quicker that save is going to be, and you know the better off you're going to be in any sort of collaborative working uh, type scenarios that involve video or anything that's high bandwidth. Cool. Things like Skype also, I mean, there's a lot of Skype users in New Zealand um, and any of those sort of, I think, VoIP-based technologies, like you said, you'll get a much better, rich user experience. Well, you can't do HD video calling on the current um, ADSL that we have, but with fibre you can actually do an HD video call where you can uh, you can push that up. I think Skype requires about 2.5 megabits upload. So that's something you know that'll just be one of the small benefits, I guess that will that will come um, that will come with fiber. And yeah, so as I say, ninety nine dollars gets you one hundred and fifty gigs worth of data, those speeds, and and a phone line included. So if we look at what you get for ninety nine dollars today, um, most you know most people you know for ninety nine dollars aren't going to get a phone line and one hundred and fifty gigs worth of data at. Um, at a at a really you know good speed, so it, it's reasonably competitive. But at those current prices in this current day and age, not many people are going to get this service because it's still rolling out. And that's one of my bugbears with the whole product is that whilst we can get excited about the product right now as it stands, I don't think we're going to be as excited in five years' time when we possibly get around to actually having it running in most of the houses. Because the biggest hassle with ISPs isn't that. Um, the capacity from the home to the exchange is actually from the ISP to the international spaces. And so this, for me, this makes a big question, how are we going to price this for international capacity? Because, you know, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of users all connected at 10 to 100 megabit circuits all wanting international capacity are going to have to fit some sort of contention ratio. And potentially this is going to be an even bigger problem than so, we've got right now. So our international pipe, for people that are listening, is quite small compared to other countries. No, I don't think there's an issue with the size of the pipe. It's the way it's I, the pricing I read of it, the pricing right. of the pipe. It's, okay. it's because they can, they can always spend a little bit more and actually push more through through it. And that's one of the beauties of, of the fibre optic technology is by changing some of the pieces in the puzzle surrounding the fibre optic cables, they can actually wind up that capacity and they have done that a number of times on the Southern Cross cable we have today. But also, and I think we might have mentioned this last week, there's a um, there's a new uh, Asian organisation and I, don't, I can't remember all the details, but um, they are looking very seriously at putting an extra uh, pipe into New Zealand that will bring... That 
that will connect from Australia to New Zealand. That's and uh, of course, Huawei, isn't it? Uh, Huawei is yep. one of the one of the companies involved. Um, I think there's a few players involved. Yep. Um, and into Australia, of course, there are a few more options than just a Southern Cross cable to get them bandwidth. So that that does provide us with um, you know with some potential. And of course, we've talked before about Pacific Fibre, um, and they're they're certainly working pretty hard, I think, to close their financing arrangements and to be able to get their uh, fibre optic um, you know connection laid through to Australia and and to the US. And you know we're certainly hopeful that um, that they'll pull that one off. But I, I don't envy the task of ISPs here because they are going to charge. This plan is ridiculous in terms of pricing. It's cheap. It is really cheap. Mm. Um, I don't envy their task of trying to balance out the sheets to get the capacity internationally on such small income. Well, they're not going to do it. Well, the, the other thing to remember is that the price of international data com- comes down on a very regular basis. So, you know, and it does depend on when they sign their agreements and what was worked into those agreements. But I remember, we, you know, we just heard in the, in the last sort of few weeks that the pricing on uh, on data through that Southern Cross um, cable had dropped by, you know, in the range of 40%. Yeah, but when you think about the current capacity that we have, effectively, and this is a generalisation, we're going to be having 10 to 100 times more capacity demand on international circuits over the next 5 to 10 years out of New Zealand. That's quite a phenomenal amount of da- data growth. So, huge task. Mm, Huge task. Absolutely. Now, the other thing for me is that, um, yes, I'm bitter because I'm probably going to be the last person in the country (laughs) that gets fibre dropped in his door. Um, For me... Maybe you could fiber. do what I did and just move houses. Well, that's right. But, Rent you know, your house out and move into the city. Yes, that's right. Well, we don't run mega corporations that earn us big money there, Paul. But you know the story. <laughs> but hey, look, the, the other thing is that um, mo- the users of uh, internet usage is moving away from some of this fixed line services stuff. So yes, we're getting fibre into the house. But what we're seeing, and this is a, a, a survey and some of the results from Ericsson in, uh, in Europe, is that Mobile users by 2014 are going to be the most prolific uh, internet users uh, in the world. So by 2014, we're going to see a lot less desktops. We're going to see a lot less, lot more mobile phones. So how does that impact on ultra-fast broadband? And possibly we'll actually see more demand on our mobile networks and the 4G networks than we will on our fiber networks. Great point. So potentially, yep. I would, I'd imagine that my house may actually end up going more wireless mobile data before it actually gets unbundled fiber. That, yeah, that's and and that is a, it's a it's a good point, and we're seeing this more and more around the world, and you know I, I think we did one of the US podcasts when I was there uh, last year over a four G uh, wireless connection in the US, and you know that was actually a really good connect. It was good enough for us to do um, to do Skype and and to do the you know it was good enough as over. long as you could fight off those squirrels. That's right, you're having squirrel issues, weren't you? They're chasing after your nuts again. Uh, but I mean that 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 was a um, that was a case in point where yep. in the particular home that I I was uh, staying in, they didn't they didn't have fibre DSL or cable connection. They were just using this four this four G um, based wireless connection. Now it actually wasn't brilliant, but it but it did the job and you know as you say yeah we're going to be doing more and more over the next few years as tablets become more prolific as we do more on our smartphones um yeah there will be um a a big move to using mobile devices but part of that is up to the networks to keep up and the challenge is can you will your wireless network be able to deliver those top speeds for all your multimedia and your and your bits and pieces of TV and, and that, other content around the home you know fast uploads and downloads as those networks get congested because they'll have their own challenges as well well what we're seeing here in Auckland is we're actually getting high density housing starting to occur a lot more now there's only 16 channels of Wi-Fi that we've got to play with and a lot of the media capable Wi-Fi devices bridge a number of those channels to achieve the goal of high speed connectivity now in my house alone I can sit there and pick up around about 16 wireless access points, now I'm not in a high density neighbourhood but there's quite a few houses around me um, and so yeah we're just going to have issues now where you'll get uh, broadband, ultra fast broadband into the house, people will fire up a wireless access point because I'll have mobile devices, it's probably just going to be easier for a lot of those guys just to go for the, the 4G type networks, of course price is going to dictate that over anything else so who knows
Yeah, and there there is a new generation of um, um, Wi-Fi coming um, that is a um, aiming at uh, the wireless HD. I think they're aiming at uh, gigabit type uh, type speeds. Is this the WiMAX? Uh, no, the, no. This is totally different. WiMAX is sort of pretty much on its on its way out, from what I can tell. As a, um, it never really made it in, did it? As a, well, there, there, are, there are quite a few places around the world that have rolled it out, even um, to a to a degree. In um, in New Zealand, there are variations. That was a there's good some investment. Al- there's some along K Road uh, in Auckland here, mm. but uh, yeah, WiMAX. I know it's my biggest bugbear because it's a destroyer of C band satellite. Which you guys use all the time. Which we right? use for news gathering. It's uh, it's quite a mess. In fact, in Singapore, they actually outlaw C band. Uh, sorry, WiMAX within uh, ten to twenty kilometres of certain locations in Singapore. It's crazy. Anyway, you're a grizzly guts on your birthday. I know. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. I'm just bitter because for my birthday, no one brought me fibre for my house. <laughs> all right. Sorry. Sorry about that. But um, yeah, the Wi-Dye was the technology I was talking oh, yeah. about, which I think at the moment primarily, well, there's that which is targeting um, um, wireless display to display between your devices and, and TV and so on. But uh, yeah, there is there is going to be an improved uh, you know Wi-Fi type technology coming through too. Um, that is you know at, at those higher ends, and that will work across a broader range of frequencies than what we see with Wi-Fi today. Yep. So yeah, hopefully some of those things will 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 uh, will get worked out um, as as time goes on. Can I just wrap it up here and say the things that I'm going to be very excited about to see what happens in New Zealand's internet space is a lot more localised caching of um, greater content. So the Akamai, the Google, the YouTube type caching locally here. I think that's where we'll win a lot more of the bandwidth battle. And some of the international capacity stuff increasing. For me, I think fibre to the door is great. It's going to be, it is going to be awesome, but I still have a huge number of doubts and it's that, that data, the content, how we're getting to that content is going to be the big challenge. Okay, well, it's it's interesting that you should talk about those caching things because last week um, Orcom were nice enough to uh, invite the NZ Tech podcast team uh, through to have a look at their uh, their data center and some of their networks and to talk to them uh, about uh, their their plans for uh, for UFB and to get some insights from them and one of the things that we were able to have a, a look at well it ended up being just me because you guys um, had, 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 a, had a job to do yeah, I, yeah. I was on holiday and got stuck on the wrong side of Auckland didn't realise what time it was yeah so um, but but I got to have a good look around and interestingly they they had a big rack of um, of infrastructure there dedicated to the two providers you talk about in terms of caching so uh, Akamai and Google and yeah, there are, there is a lot of equipment in their data center uh, dedicated to uh, to caching that information. So when you go looking for certain uh, types of content, video and audio and um, and other web content maps and so on, um, a lot of that is actually coming from a local data center. So it doesn't have to uh, get pulled down from the US in every instance, which is great because I know that uh, one of the servers they've got there is a Steam server. Which is the uh, PC gaming, PC Mac gaming equivalent? Yes, of, we tweeted um, a picture of that one too. Xbox and PlayStation, that sort of thing. Before they had a server like that down there, I mean, Orcon, I was an Orcon customer. They had phenomenal speeds, great international speed. It was fantastic, but a Steam game would take something like about two days to come down from the states. Sometimes it would just be pointless trying to buy a game on launch day. Um, but now it's uh, really lightning quick. It's great service. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I mean personally, I don't use it, but it's good. Uh, it's good to know that there's a there's a big benefit out of the ISPs jumping on board with that stuff. So that's cool, and it saves ISPs a lot of money too. I mean, it's less another service they don't have to stress about on their international capacity. So yeah, it's a bit of point. bit of a win win for them, I think, to a degree. It still costs them a little bit to get up and running. Yeah, it does. I think there is quite a bit of an investment to do that, but it's great to see more of the you know certainly the bigger ISPs are jumping on on board with that too. So. Um, that that's a good one. Now we have been uh, reaching out to some of the other uh, ISPs and just to get a handle on what their UFB plans are. Uh, so far, really, most of them, including Orcon, um, are reasonably tight-lipped around around their 
rates and pricing so uh, you know it was nice to get those world net figures out but we will be putting all of those up online on uh, the NZ Tech podcast site as they uh, as they come to hand um, and there's been a lot of discussion around Geek Zone around the newly announced uh, prices as well over the weekend so um, definitely yeah, keep a track on, on Geek Zone and the NZ Tech podcast site to uh, to keep a track on that and from if you if you go to the uh, NZ Tech podcast homepage there is a link to all that UFB info and then that'll point you out to the various coverage maps around the country there's links there back to Crown Fibre um, and and various other um, resources so uh, so keep a track on that to uh, to stay up to date right now on to uh, on to our other topics there was um, there've been some some technical issues with uh, Google Wallet in the last few days. Oh yeah. Now Google Wallet's interesting, isn't it? This is um, Google's payment service that they've launched in the US uh, primarily, and uh, it's it's mostly being tied in um, to their smartphones. And what's the technology at play here, uh, guys? So it's a brute force attack. The good old brute force pin attack and what they've done is that a lot of android phones a lot of people that have got android devices if you've got one that's been rooted so it basically it's been i suppose hacked so i could put different operating systems on it which um, is pretty common isn't it yeah it's pretty common yeah um what they've found is that the um the google wallets um software that's running on top of that can actually have a brute force pin attack um, pin attack put against it and can actually um you can exploit the pin and they've also found there's a scenario where phones that haven't been rooted um, also have uh, similar yep. associated risks. Yep. But I guess what what this to me highlights is, you know, if I know that uh, you know a lot of people do like to root their devices, whether it's an iPhone or, or Android, etc. Um, but it just highlights that that potentially puts you at a little bit more risk in some of these situations. So, you know, not something we'd recommend for, uh, um, you know, devices that are going to have really, um, you know, important data in them, certainly not the sort of thing you'd want to let into your business, put it that way. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that the, the articles that are out there at the moment talk about is that if, your phone, if I got hold of Skip's phone and I managed to open it up, I could basically do a brute force attack, change his PIN, then I'd have access to all his payment, and then I could actually spend his money. Right, and by, this, by this, and this ties in with the near-field communications payment systems Correct. that they're using in the US, doesn't it, yep. Yep. Um, via Android? So this is cash. At the end of the day, as we had, and the gentleman's name just eludes me right now, who we had from the security gentleman on with the credit cards, um, this, this is cash, using his words. So we've got to be very, I mean, I think it's a cool technology, but we need to think, I think long-term, this has always been my beef, is security around this thing. We've got to get it right. Yeah. Um, did you guys catch on that uh, the DOD have approved the um, uh, the Google Android phones now for internal use? Yeah, that was quite interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, I, um, they've taken the source code and they've overhauled it massively. All oh, right. So they've written so, their own version. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, I mean, oh, it's a, yeah. a DOD spec um, rewrite of everything, which is, which is fine. But it sort of does open up the, um, the concept that, hey, possibly... There's a space here for a um, business for Samsung or you know whoever HTC turn around and do something very similar and create a very secure version of their own phones for business platforms. I would like to see DoD release it publicly. I don't know if they will. Eh? And they don't want other people part, to know know what they've done to, part of the, uh, <laughs> to lock it down. Exactly. Right? Part of the uh, the thing with security is you do have this layer of obscurity with your security, mm, so mm. it does work. You know, it's not not a terribly great model, but at least it uh, keeps people guessing. Um, but yeah, the um, the old electronic payments on those devices does get a little bit hairy yeah. on any mobile devices to be honest yeah and those that are interested in hearing a little bit more um, Brad was referring to Simon Gamble from uh, Mako who uh, who came and, uh, and and joined us on the podcast um, just before Christmas so if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about um, that sort of um, you know fraud stuff then uh, then check out that uh, that one which I think was episode 46 yep Sorry, Simon, I forgot your name. That was an awesome podcast. I love that one. Now, also in the, um, I guess, security-related stakes, um, Microsoft's store in India got hacked, uh, I think, over the weekend, if I recall correctly. That's correct. Now, 
what do we know what do we know about this was it was it a genuine hacking situation was it you know what 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 actually happened so what I what I've been able to read on the different websites and, and ascertain is this is not the Microsoft Windows Phone Store or the new upcoming Windows 8 store, which a lot of people on the Twitter sphere were thinking it was one of those stores. This is they had an online store where you could purchase items like software and bits and pieces, and it looks like it, all the passwords were kept in uh, clear text. Really on, on the website, yeah. Because I I've understood that it could have been hashed. Plain text. Sorry, oh, plain. so it was plain text. Plain text. Naughty, naughty Microsoft. So um, the the guys that did it were <laughs> the uh, the shadow team, um, and they went in there. And so Microsoft India store obviously is down at the moment. So if you try going to that URL, it will not render. Or I think it's got a placeholder page. But on um, on Engadget at the moment, they've actually got a screen grab where they've actually exposed all the passwords with them all fuzzed out, showing how they're all just extracted in, in plain text. Wow, so that's uh, very poor. That's very poor. Yep. I dare say a few people are going to lose their jobs in India because clear text is wrong. Yes, very absolutely wrong. wrong. And it and it absolutely flies in the face of Microsoft's um, own internal policies and stuff. I mean, the, you go to TechEd and you hear them talk about uh, the security stuff. It's one of the first things they tell you not to do is storing it in clear text. Oh yes. I mean, this this must have been done by someone who just really didn't care. Someone's going to get pwned. Oh, they are big mm. time. Mm. But that's bad news. That's so is this an news. old site? Is it one that's been around for a long time? And I mean, it'd be very interesting to find out a little bit more. I mean, how do you end up with a with a you know something like this getting left online that is uh, is, is so insecure? Because you look, and there are a lot of sites that have been maybe been around for a long time, and you know they just haven't been brought up to date. They might have been developed ten or fifteen years ago, and in, in some form, you know, and. Um, yeah, if they haven't been redone, it's those older sites that really are at the most risk. I guess you know you'd 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 have to guess this is a this is something that's been around for for some time. But uh, no doubt we'll find out a little bit more in the in the coming days ahead if um, if somebody discovers that info. Mind you, I'm just going to segue here again, and that uh, one of the largest hosting companies in the states, DreamHost, also have gone through a major hacking incident themselves. Uh, where they lost their database passwords, um, user accounts and everything. Very disruptive, very disruptive. They've had a terrible month, but I won't go into that. Mm. You've had lots of fun with oh, them. I've just had a guts full of it. <laughs> now, in other news, um, Windows on ARM, or WOA. WOA. Whoa. There was a whole bunch of information released on that in the last few days. Which, And I guess for those that are interested, what's Windows on ARM all about? Well, ARM is the, uh, the, is the, are the chips that are really at the core of iPads and Android tablets today. And will and it will also be ARM chips um, that are in most of our smartphones. So yep. if you look at a Windows phone, an Android, uh, just about anything, iPhone, and so on, they u- they use the ARM uh, they use the ARM technology. Um, and even the likes of uh, the PlayStation uh, Vita, I believe. Um, so they're very, very common uh, chips. But of course, Windows hasn't run on this technology before. But with Windows 8, it will. In the last few days, there's been a whole bunch of uh, info that uh, Stephen Sonofsky and his uh, his team at Microsoft have uh, have put up online um, for the public. Yes, ten thousand words, and I read them all. Actually, I hate to say it, I actually was really curious about finding about what they're going to do to get on this platform, and it is a really, really interesting read. But man, it gets into some detail at, at his lower ends of um, how the chips are going to work and what applications. But in short, it looks really good that we're going to actually have a lot of rich of the Microsoft Office applications on the ARM processors, which is a lot of people are really worried about. Well, there were two major questions, weren't there? One, people wanted to know whether they were going to be able to get uh, whether the ARM systems would have access to a traditional Windows desktop for file management and those sorts of things. Uh, whether there would be a version of Office that would be in the sort of the Metro, the new user interface style, uh, because there was that thought, well, Office maybe doesn't naturally uh, fit itself to that sort of user interface style, uh, and also whether um, you'd be able to run sort of um, other traditional applications yep. on Windows on ARM, and they've really answered those 
those three questions, haven't they? So we've got Office, but it will be more a more traditional style version of Office, but tweaked for a touch interface and so on. Will come with those ARM-based tablets, uh, although that's not clear entirely. But it basically it says that that that, that Windows on ARM will actually come with Office. So it's not very clear whether you get a free version of Office, whether you get a trial version of Office, uh, etc. But it, it's uh, what they're saying is, hey, it's coming. I, I doubt it'll be a free version of Office. Seems, it seems unlikely, doesn't yeah. it? So it's likely to be some sort of trial that you, you pay a bit to but sort of step up. All the, all the Metro apps that are going to come with Windows 8 on Intel will have app compatibility onto the ARM version. Mm. Okay, so from the Metro good. apps. And that yep. was, yeah, that was That's a pretty major thing. announcement. So any app, any Metro app, which is the new Windows 8 style, will just run on any of the new Windows 8 machines, whatever chip technology is, is underlying. So as a developer, I fire up my Visual Studio for the new Metro interface, design it, it goes on ARM and Intel. It yep. compiles to both? Yes, so it all, all happens automatically. Yep. And, and I'm just reading that right now. Mm. Interestingly, developers can in fact ship Win32 style code that targets ARM as well when compiling. See, that's brilliant because it, it actually they understand that the infrastructure behind the applications needs to be needs to be set, needs to be reliable, needs to be ready to go. And so what they've done is they've turned around and they've said, developers, carry on what you're doing. We'll just make it work for you. I mean, that's yep. just mint. Yeah. So, but it won't. What won't work are the old traditional Windows apps that we're used to today. They will not run. They will not run on ARM. Yeah. So but it's it will all have these Minesweeper. New, these uh, yes. these new style ones. So uh, <laughs> it it is it's good to get that uh, good to get that clarified. And um, yeah, I was curious about access to the desktop because there are there are some sort of file type functions and things that uh, we're used to be used to being able to do, getting a command line and so on. Maybe. Uh, that you need that traditional old-style desktop for. So it's nice to know that that is in the background if you really need it. I guess my pick is that most people won't generally be using that other than for Office. So for the listeners out there that hadn't caught up to the news, Microsoft will be releasing uh, a consumer preview on February the 29th. Now, WOA will not be released as part of that consumer preview. Oh, so well, that's because there's no way to to install WoA at this stage. Correct. When you when you buy a uh, uh, an ARM based tablet, that's going to come with it pre installed, right? Yep. You're not going to be they're not going to be a you walk into a store and buy a DVD or a, some sort of media that you install onto that tablet because it's it's already there. But no doubt, some crazy Russian website will probably leak the exactly. code. Blah 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 blah. But and we'll and then we'll be able to squeeze them onto our touch pads and our iPads and. Android tablets. Oh, I, I can't wait to go and get an iPad and put Windows 8 on it. Oh. <laughs> and, and the other the other thing to note also is that WoA won't support Hyper-V at the moment. So the virtualization no. technology that Microsoft has for um, virtualizing well, old legacy not, things. not really relevant in this sort of well, case, I wouldn't have they're thought. Gonna be, they're going to be doing it on other devices maybe, so we're going to wait and see. But yeah, I w- I'm not I, sure of any other tablet manufacturer that's doing virtualization on, on device. You want to sort of dedicate though, the whole thing. Virtualization does work quite nicely for protecting of web browsers and stuff like that if you can fire up your browser in a virtualized space and then you've got yourself a little virtual space that gets infected and bloatware and all sorts of stuff protects your device so I well they usually do that to a degree anyway without having to do a full vi- uh, virtualization now the other interesting thing we we're just talking about maybe get you know squeezing windows 8 onto the touchpads is that you can now get um android 4 ice cream sandwich and um Th- and get that and uh, and squeeze that onto your uh, your touchpad, which you've had a quick play of, haven't you? Yeah, I had a little bit of a play with this over the over the weekend, and um, I think it's the Cyanogen um, mod uh, guys that have uh, that have done this and released it online, and um, yeah, it it is actually really really cool. Now um, the man who let me have a play with his um, touchpad. Over the weekend, uh, one of the chaps from uh, Noel Leeming actually um, was a good gentleman that uh, let me have a look, and I was actually quite impressed with it. Um, but I just have to admit that I've done what you did earlier, and I'm in a name for getting. I know um, it's that nice. Um, <laughs> it's old age. So, um, so, so my my apologies uh, uh, goes out to. Um, <laughs> He's trying to pad out to yeah, work out the name yeah. here. No, I'm, but I'm, what was your experience when you actually had to go to the tablet? Because you came in, and you thought it was really nippy it, and quite nice. I mean, nice. It, it looks really nice. Now it is sort of a, a very early on build so you know admittedly there are things that 
aren't quite smooth and quite perfect yet but you know wi-fi was working and bluetooth was working and you know that's all the core sort of functions were, were mostly working uh and it just reminded me what a nice tablet the touchpad actually is it is it is a nice piece of hardware and the screen just you know it's a nice bright screen it's it's good piece of kit so those that were lucky enough to uh, pick one up cheap or uh, win one off the nz tech podcast uh, because we gave one away last year um, may well like to look at this and the interesting thing is that you can actually um have your machine boot either so you don't have to get rid of the web os operating system you can um you can keep that in place and uh and still you know boot android and, and go backwards and forwards so you know it doesn't sort of destroy it if you've got everything set up in um in, in webos so nice quite interesting now i don't know whether it will work with those um the unreleased unofficial uh smaller touchpad that we um or the one we had the one we we, yeah. we we saw before anywhere then no one online had published anything about it we were sworn to secrecy um <laughs> until now to paul's blabbed it out no That's no there was right. something that came online oh, about good. a month or two later that we did not leak i'll just point that out um <laughs> so uh yeah of the um of the the small i think it was a seven inch um uh touchpad now other other news now since since we're on the topic of tablets and we've just been talking about Windows 8 um, there were there were the developer Windows 8 tablets that um, Microsoft uh, made available last year from Samsung at their big um, mix developer event build 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 sorry yep. build uh, and now there's a very similar device available on the market today from Samsung in New Zealand running Windows 7. But my understanding is when that consumer preview uh, comes out in a couple of weeks, you will be able to load Windows 8 onto that same device. Those are available in retailers today, retailing around $2,300 That's great. Um, right now. Uh, in fact, I had a little bit of a play with one um, over the weekend at uh, at JB Hi-Fi. I've got um, one in the office at the moment. Yeah, they're very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. And if you grab one of those... This month or next month, and you're quick, you can send in and get a free Samsung Omnia W um, phone, running yeah. Windows phone. Yeah. So quite a good little deal if you're um, if you're a bit of a fan of that stuff and you want to get your hands on Windows 8 running on a tablet early, that's probably one of the best ways of doing it. Got to go. Bye. Going to the store now. All right. We'll see you soon. <laughs> no, I was very tempted actually to walk out with one because I had that feeling like, you know, look, Windows 8 on its own, you know, on new hardware, hey, that could be six months away. But in two weeks, you could be running Windows 8 on Buy a very it, nice tablet Buy. right now. Buy it, Paul. Buy <laughs> Now, what else is in the news? We had um, Two Degrees make uh, make their announcement. And uh, again, a little reminder for our listeners to keep following us on uh, on Twitter and Facebook because I think we were the first in New Zealand to uh, to break this news on Twitter. Was that Two Degrees announced their subscriber numbers are up to eight hundred and seventy five thousand. That's phenomenal. Well done, guys. I mean, six hundred and fifty six. That is right down. That is really really good considering we're what two three years ago. Two and a half years, I think, roughly since their, uh, then, since their launch. You know, that is a phenomenal effort, guys. Well done. Yeah, and there are new adverts coming out talking more about how vast their network is, which is very encouraging. So their engineers have clearly not been sleeping at nights and just rolling out networks left, right and centre. So well done on that. Yeah. yeah. Now, while we're on the subject of mobile networks... Um, have a look at GeekZone if you're interested in, in learning a little bit more about mobile networks and the infrastructure that's involved because uh, right now they are, um, they're linking to some maps that will allow you to actually see where the cell sites are in your area. You can actually put in your address and, uh, and you'll see all the, all the cell sites around. Um, I think the last time I looked, there was a link right at the top of the Geek Zone, um, the Geek Zone page to some mobile maps. If I'm wrong, then there's definitely some links to it. Nope, in you're their, right. Uh, it's all there in their forums. Um, so if uh, yeah, if that if that changes, then definitely have a look around the forums, and there's some good detail on that. And yeah, I found it quite fascinating to have a look around my area. And I had an issue with uh, some coverage as I was sitting in a cafe uh, over the weekend where I was just getting two um, G 
coverage and not 3G. And, I, you know, admittedly, I was on a phone that wasn't designed for the network that I was using, so I understood uh, the risk because I'm trialling a, a phone from overseas. Uh, but I was able to have a look on this map and just see exactly what was going on. And you can see where all the two degrees, Vodafone, um, and uh, Telecom XT network uh, cell sites are. So this is very cool. This yeah. is very. I just looked at my house and I just found there's a Vodafone cell site just up the road. That is brilliant. Absolutely magical. I'm quite impressed with that. So that's quite cool. Um, UFB website needs to use this link because it doesn't work for my house. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so that that one's well well worth a look. Now, Skip, you love your gaming probably more more than most. (laughs) And, in fact, you're you're involved with a local gaming website – Yep, it's cool. my own website actually. Yeah, uh, what's what's your what's the what's the website URL there, Skip? So it's GameGuide.co.nz. GameGuide.co.nz, and um, you guys have been having a good look at the Sony PlayStation Vita. Yes. Now I saw this um, in, at CES, of course, but it it hadn't been launched in the US at that stage. I think it had it's a uh, it's had a launch in just the Japanese market so far, I believe, uh, yep. mid December. Yep. Um, but it's it's got a sort of a fairly widespread international launch happening in New Zealand, US, and a whole bunch of other sort of countries, pretty pretty close to simultaneously. Yeah, and there's been a delay because of the uh, the Japanese manufacturing process has been a bit damaged because of the tsunami, so they haven't been able to sort of do that worldwide global launch up till now, mm. just so they can get their stocks up. And so, 23rd of February, 22nd, 23rd, depending on which part of the world you're in, um, we're away. And you get yourself a uh, PlayStation Vita. And I have to say, um, this is a quite a nice piece of portable gaming and entertainment unit. It is. I mean, the um, the PSP, when it came out, was a pretty outstanding piece of kit. Mm-hmm. Now, that's been around in the market for quite a long time. And it really was time for something new from uh, from Sony. Yeah, well, they've done a couple of things. They had the PSP and they had the PSP Go. Um, but they've kind of kept the same form factor as the uh, the PSP. Um, and yeah, the music's playing in the background. Paul's found the golf game already. Um, this is a really nice device. And this is actually one of those devices that uses the ARM chips. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is too much fun, Skip. I can't help myself. These games are great. This has got a four-core ARM processor in it. I mean, it's a grunty piece of kit. And uh, the one thing I do like about Sony is they do tend to um, over-spec their boxes. I mean, the PlayStation 3 is a phenomenal piece of uh, processing hardware. I mean, it's ridiculous. People use it to um, crack codes because it's so so grunty. Um, 512 meg of RAM. It has a 5-inch OLED screen. It's a beautiful screen, I've got to say. It is. Now, it has this new format, which I've never come across before, called QHD. So it's sort of a, a small HD screen, which is 960 by 544, um, 24-bit color. So it is, it's a nice, nice-looking screen. Brad and I were playing um, Uncharted on it earlier, and... Um, I mean, Brad's a little bit of a Sony skeptic, to be honest. I like this. And he likes the I like look this. of this game. I like this a lot. Now, I like it a lot. The, one of the, I mean, there's a lot of differences between this and um, the PSP, although there are, there are some similarities in terms of the look. Mm-hmm. But one of the big ones, it's got 3G built in. Yes, so and a uh, GPS, but a lot of them have that. You know, the Bluetooth, the Wi-Fi, the 3G. So there's two models that come out. There's the Wi-Fi only model, and then there's the Wi-Fi and 3G model. Um, so a lot of those things are starting to come in standard in a lot of pl- portable platforms these days. And it, it, I, but it only adds a hundred dollars to the price, doesn't yeah, it? New Zealand dollars. Really so it's a, it's um, so you're looking about four. So the, the official retail price is four four nine four fifty for the Wi-Fi model and yep. five fifty for the three G model. That's not a big step up, is it? No, it's not. That's quite good. And when you think of the actual, I mean, I'm looking at this piece of hardware with this five inch screen. There's, there's really a whole lot to it. You know, really nice sound and so on. Yep. Um, five hundred and fifty dollars. You know, when you compare that to what sort of a phone you get, five hundred and fifty dollars. Well, I mean, this, this, is, this blows anything on the market away. So it shows what is possible to actually deliver at that price point. It's got some features you might be surprised about, Paul. I mean, it has the the uh, PlayStation proprietary gaming features like the six-axis control, which is accelerometers in different directions, and the D-pad and the PlayStation buttons that you're used to with a PlayStation. 
PlayStation. But turn it over on the back and have a look at the back there. It's actually got a touchpad. Oh on yes, the back of yes. The unit. So I forgot about that actually. So um, and that comes into play on a various different games. They use the back of the pad to do various things. It is quite cool. Um, and it has two cameras, forward and back facing. I'm not sure what the specs are on the cameras yet. You can have a bit of a I play. I think the cameras were pretty low spec from what I was reading. I think they're um, probably the same spec as an iPad 2 camera, to be honest. But mm. what they what they did just announce, um, if I've got this right, uh, that wasn't in the initial launch, was that it now operates as a video camera as I think initially it just operated as a still there's been a software update the 1.6 yep. update so I've only just got the update on there today so I'm going to have a bit of a play with we that we couldn't get the video week. camera working and that before does, that does Google Maps as well doesn't yep, it Google so Maps that, that was on one there. of the new additions so the nice thing is that this being an entirely Sony um, you know system is that they're basically able to keep pushing out these updates. Yep. And they've certainly been doing that since the uh, the launch in Japan. So even whatever it comes out with at launch, you can expect there's going to be you know ongoing updates of this to make use of the GPS, to make use of the 3G and the other capabilities along the way. So Now, on the original PlayStation Portable, they had those UMD discs, little um, sort of mini CD, DVD-type discs, um, which were okay, but they did have a bit of a load time to them. This time, what they've done is they've come up with, um, it's effectively like an SD card, but they call it the Vita card. It's a 4 to 32 gig size card and it's all solid state so the load times are dramatically improved on games it was good when I loaded up the golf game before it it's was really good it's really quick and it and actually will load a lot of games and leave them in the background so you can have multiple apps running as well on this device it's quite slick um, and yeah I mean it's just um, it ties in as you say to the PlayStation ecosystem PlayStation store PlayStation network you can socialise with your friends they're really trying to build up some of the augmented reality aspect of this game uh, of this device and uh, you can still get to your usual Sony music and uh, videos content through the device so it really is quite a decent portable gaming device not sure on how the battery life's going to go I think we're just going to have to give it a week to give it a real bash and we'll see how it goes but um, there are quite a few decent titles coming out with this. So, oh, and you can download your own games as well. So you don't have to necessarily go into a store to buy a card. You can just go onto the PlayStation Marketplace and download it that way. So, yeah, I, I'm um, I'm quite impressed actually. I I want to get it at home and get it off the network we're on now, where we can actually get outside where it's not blocked and actually have a play with all the updates as well. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I don't actually think the um, I don't know if it will actually be different in different market spaces. Mm. One thing I do know Ooh, about the PlayStation yes. is they, they tend to be quite uh, less less constrained by regional settings. Uh, not like the Xbox where you basically, your Xbox in the States and your Xbox in Australia and your Xbox in New Zealand are totally different experiences. Geolocking, yeah. I think it does have some regional settings, but generally their feel is that you get the same sort of stuff globally. So yeah, I um, PlayStation are throwing the kitchen sink at this one, and I think it's a fair comment to say it's going to be quite a good seller in the uh, Western countries. Uh, I believe it hasn't been super amazing in Japan. You usually but expect it, Japan to be the place where uh, you know where Sony products and PlayStation products do the best. So yeah, but Sony, have, I'm curious uh, about this one. Sony, I think when it comes to Japan, you've got to realise they've just gone through a massive natural disaster. I mean, who knows what the impact of that would be on sales and that sort of thing. Um, and maybe people are just hanging out to see what happens next. But uh, I'm this is a quite impressive platform. So as, as the hardware goes, it's beautiful. And yes. but my only concern, and this is it, is that we were talking about this before, is that at the moment the gaming platforms you have are your phone, you have your iPads, your Android devices. You have now got your portable games to play like this here. There's so many devices where this used to be such a this used to be the only thing before iPads and I suppose and tablets came out. Now there's a quite a plethora of other devices, and if I'm going outside, I don't have to take my four or five devices just to do things. Skip, what's your answer to that I'll as a gamer? My uh, my answer to that because I I'm a gamer and my gamer dad and my son who's three and a half is a budding gamer. I mean, he loves playing on the Xbox and on the iPhone. And I have to say, the thing that annoys me so much about the iPhone gaming ecosystem is in-app purchasing and the ability for kids to find themselves in all sorts of space to be able to buy stuff. Um, now, you can control some of that, but it's still not a totally perfect ecosystem. I think, for me as a parent, giving this to a kid would be much much more preferable than actually handing over a phone controlled. with a gaming. Fair point. It's much more controlled. 
Um, and I think, to be honest, the gaming is going to be a lot better. You, I mean, this is a four-core ARM chip. Oh, it's gorgeous this graphics. Is, this is going to kick the gaming platform well above um, the iPhone offering. Um, okay, yep, there's more games probably on the iPhone space at this stage. But as I say, it's an ecosystem. I think it's, that's a very, it's a very different platform, really, it, to it any, any of the smartphone ones. But I think Brad raises a fair point that there is a segment, there is a segment of the market, the very sort of casual, occasional gamers, you know, who won't go near this and probably wouldn't have gone near the PSP. No. Um, but there may be a segment of people that would have fitted into that original PSP category that now are quite happy to use their smartphone or, or you know, or tablet I think in, instead of having one of these. But I think there's still a market for it, absolutely. And um, I don't think they could have come out with a device that was, you know, much better than this. It's it's pretty it's impressive. It's pretty slick for yeah. what it is. It, it's possibly a little bit of a Nintendo killer to some degree, but... Hey, you know, we'll see what the market has to say, and the games have to be there. I mean, people don't necessarily go to platforms, they go to games. Yeah. Good stuff. All right, well, that, uh, that probably just about wraps us up for this week. Hold um, on, I've got some local news that I've just discovered, and I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this. Um, iPhone New Zealand, the, the great team that have been working around the country, they're closing down. What? Their website's closing down. What? Yeah, the iPhone NZ guys. Um, I was just sort of following them before, and iPhone NZ will officially shut down their website on the 20th of February 2012 after being um, up and running since 2009. Um, Yeah, it just looks like it's become quite a massive operation for the guys to run down there. So I just want to say to Steve and Dan, you guys have done a great job out there. It's really sad to um, see you guys moving on. And, yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the system. So... I know you guys listen to the show, and yeah, um, give us a tweet, let us know if there's anything we can do up here to help you guys out, but yeah, iPhone NZ will be disappearing 20th of February 2012. I'm going to miss those guys, they were legends. Yeah, they were, they were really yeah. good. Yeah, well, we, we hope uh, something will keep going or something will, will come along that can uh, um, that can change that, but um, yeah, we do, uh, we do appreciate uh, what you guys have been doing. And uh, for those that haven't haven't had a look, then definitely uh, you know check out their website while uh, um, while while they're still about. Uh, it's been a great resource. All right, well that's us. Uh, thank you everyone for uh, for listening in. And uh, if you want to catch those resources we've mentioned, uh, do check in at nztechpodcast.com. Um, and to stay up to date with with news and and snippets of information uh, through the week in between shows, um, stay following us on Twitter at NZ Tech Podcast, of course, facebook.com slash NZ Tech Podcast also. And you can keep in touch with us uh, individually. Uh, you can hit us up on email, feedback at nztechpodcast.com, or you can hit skip on Twitter. Urban Kiwi NZ. Or Brad. At Brad Bohr. And myself is just my name, Paul Spain, on Twitter. So thanks very much. Enjoy your week. Cheers. Bye-bye. Happy birthday, Skip. Skip. <laughs>